So this morning, I'd like us to begin a new sermon series through the book of First Thessalonians. And if you've got a Bible with you and you can find First Thessalonians, it would be great if you could turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians um, is probably one of Paul's earliest letters. In fact, some people believe that it was Paul's very first uh, letter, written in AD 51, probably, uh, just short of 2,000 years ago. And First Thessalonians is a, is a very important letter because Paul is writing to brand new Christians. And in this letter, he gives priorities for new believers. Uh, he pours out his heart. He shares his desires and longings for new believers. Uh, what is important for new believers to know? Uh, how is it important for new believers to grow? What is important for new believers to show? Uh, the title for the series is Genuine Imitation. And it comes from the key verse in chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7, where Paul says of this little church, you became imitators of the Lord, and so you became a model to all the believers. That's a really great line, and we'll look at it later in our series. So this morning as a warm-up for our series, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. Don't worry, we won't go through the rest of the book, just three verses at a time. But let's have a look at what Paul writes in these opening verses. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Pastor Richard Buse is a pastor in London, and he tells a story of how he was once a speaker at an evangelistic conference. And at the end of his sermon one night, he gave an appeal. He said, if anyone would like to come to know Jesus as their Savior, would they come to the front? And a man came to the front, and he was incredibly disheveled. He was wearing what Richard described as a jacket what, that looked like it was made of uncured goat skin. Um, he, his hair had been brushed in a very long while, and he came to Richard, and he said, um, I, you know, I want to become a Christian. And from this whole man's manner, Richard thought to himself, you're on drugs. But this man said he'd made a commitment to follow Jesus. And so Richard prayed with him and prayed for him. And then afterwards, Richard said to the man, well, can I get your address so we can keep talking? And the man said, well, he didn't have an address. He was actually sleeping under a haystack in one of the fields. And uh, so the man kind of wandered off, and Richard thought to himself, well, that didn't go very well. I, I wonder if I'll ever see him again. And in fact, even before the, the conference, one of the, the, the pastors of the local churches had said to Richard, you know, we often get drifters coming into our service. Uh, they see a big crowd. They want to know what's going on. They come in, but they're not really interested. And so Richard felt quite disillusioned from that experience, and he kept on praying for the man during the weeks, but didn't know what had happened. 
And then about 15 months later, Richard was preaching at another service. And after the service, a young man walked towards him and he said to Richard, do you know who I am? And Richard said, yes, I do. You're that man at the evangelistic conference. He looked completely different. He said to Richard, that night after I'd prayed a prayer, I I went back to my haystack and he said, "I, I, I gave up drugs completely. It was difficult, but I gave them up. I got a job washing dishes at a, a local diner, and I managed to earn a little bit money, of money that way. I've started studying for my matric, and I've already done three subjects. So I started going to a local church. I've been there for several months now. And in fact, I met a young lady there, and we're engaged to be married. Here she is, and there she was. An amazing change had taken place. And Richard was so encouraged because all of the time he'd wondered how things had been going with this young man. He hadn't been very hopeful. He'd worried about him. But now he could see a change had taken place. And something very similar happened to the Apostle Paul nearly 2,000 years ago during his second missionary journey. He started a little church in in the city of Thessalonica, but just after a few weeks he had to leave. And he worried about what had happened to these new believers. Was it a serious commitment? Would they continue in the Lord? Did the church even exist? You can read the story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16 and 17. You might remember that Paul gets a call to go to Europe. He has a vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke set off for Europe. The very first place they go to is the city of Philippi, and they have a a great mission in Philippi. You'll remember a number of people come to know the Lord, uh, but then, as so often happened, persecution arose. Paul and Silas are put in jail. Afterwards, they have to leave the city, and they go down the road to the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is in modern-day Greece, and its modern name is Thessaloniki, uh, one of the first, uh, one of the few New Testament cities that has retained its name. Now, Thessalonica is actually a woman's name. For those of you who are looking for baby names, uh, Thessalonica was the half-sister of Alexander the Great, and her husband, one of Alexander's commanders, named the city after her. It was a very important Roman city. Remember, Rome was uh, divided up into a number of provinces, like South Africa. And Thessalonica was the capital of the province of Macedonia. It was almost as important as Rome itself. It had, as you can see, a natural harbor, so it was very good for trade. And it was situated on the N2 highway. Uh, The N2 was the main road which linked the Black Sea with the Adriatic Sea. It wasn't called the N2, of course. It was called the Ignatian Way. And uh, so Paul wanted to visit the strategic city and and share the gospel there. So when Paul and his companions arrived at the city of Thessalonica, they did what they normally did. They went to the synagogue and they spent some time teaching there. And what they did was they told these Jewish people from the scriptures that the Messiah had to die and rise again. Then they described the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And then they put those two together and they said, this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks 
and not a few prominent women. So it was a very successful mission. And it's possible that Paul uh, spent some time in the synagogue and then moved on to preaching to the Gentiles. But then uh, Luke tells us that a number of the Jewish leaders became jealous of Paul. They were upset about this disruption in their synagogue, the fact that people were leaving them. And so they went down to the marketplace, they hired some thugs, and they started a riot in the city. They went to Jason's house. Jason uh, was the man that Paul was staying with. Uh, They couldn't find Paul there. Paul was probably out preaching somewhere. And so they grab Jason, they take him down to the magistrates, and this is their accusation. These men, who have turned the whole world upside down, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Isn't that a great phrase, though? They've turned the world upside down. But it it was a very serious charge, and we're not quite sure what happened during the final court case. We know that Jason is let out on bail, and uh, when Paul returns home, um, he and his companions decide to leave the city, not because they're scared of persecution, but they don't want uh, to uh, cause undue suffering to this new church as well. And Paul is heartbroken that he's had to leave this brand new church. It's just a few weeks old. It's already facing persecution and opposition. What's going to happen to them? So Paul is concerned about them as he leaves Thessalonica, goes down the road to Berea. He's worried about them. Uh, After several months, he manages to send Timothy back to the church to find out how they're doing. And Timothy has just returned to Paul with his report. And it's great news. The church is fine. They're doing well. In fact, the whole province has heard the good news about Jesus from these folk. And so Paul sits down and he writes this letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. He says to them in chapter 3, Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How did Paul know that these Christians were going to be okay? When I get to visit some of you in hospital, one of the first things that you will say to me or uh, that will come up in the conversation is, when am I going home? And uh, normally we say, you know, it's before the operation, how long are you going to be in hospital? Well, I hope to be in hospital three days after the up. And then after the operation, people lie there and they say, well, I hope I can go home tomorrow or the doctor's coming this morning. Maybe I'll go home this afternoon. Uh, but but they, they have to remain in hospital. And often they ask the question, why? Why do I need to stay here? I feel fine. Why do they have to stay in hospital? Well, any good doctor won't allow her patient to go home before she can see certain signs. You stay in hospital so they can check out your vital signs. Some of those are on the inside, some internal signs, things like blood pressure and heartbeat. And some of those signs are on the outside. What is the patient's color? What is her mood? Uh, What is their appetite like? And once all of those signs look okay, the doctor knows everything is going to be fine. The patient can go home. And the same is true of the Thessalonians, that there was an inner sign that Paul could spiritually discern. 
And then there were a few outward signs that were in fact linked to that inner sign as well, as, as we'll see. But let's look at those one at a time. How does Paul know that the Thessalonians are going to be fine? Well, first of all, there is an internal sign, an inner reality. Did you notice how Paul addresses these, uh, these Thessalonians? Uh, Paul does what any writer in the ancient world uh, did. Uh, they always begin by saying who they are rather than you reading all the way through the letter and then finding out. He begins by saying Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And then it's so interesting to see how he goes on. Just by way of contrast, look at some of, other, some of the other greetings that Paul gives. He says, to all in Rome who are loved by God, to the church of God in Corinth, to the churches in Galatia, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to God's holy people in Colossae. But look at how Paul begins this letter. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who these Christians are on the inside. They are in God the Father, which means that their life is intimately bound up with the life of God. Like a father wrapping his child up in his jacket, it speaks of intimacy and belonging and safety and protection and security. And notice that it's a double embrace in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus used a, a similar and a very moving picture in John chapter 10, where he said this about his sheep, his followers. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are held in the double embrace of God the Father and God the Son. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 3, and he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And Jesus used another image in John chapter 15. Uh, he used the picture of the vine and the branches, and he said, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. So to be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ means to be living in God, rooted in God, drawing our life from God. And Paul says of the Thessalonians, that is a sign that you're going to be okay. And that's a sign that we too will be okay if we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true of us, if we are indeed in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, then there'll be some outward signs of that. And Paul goes on to mention three outward signs that he can see in the Thessalonians. Another word for outward signs would be fruit. And we'll come back to that as well. So lots of different metaphors and pictures this morning. But have a look at these outward signs that Paul mentions in verse 3. He says, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul speaks about faith, hope, and love, which are the great trio of the Christian life. And they come up again and again in the New Testament, probably most famously in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul speaks about things in this life that last and things in this life that don't last. And he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. These are the marks of a genuine Christian. These are the things that Paul can see in the life of this little church. Let's look at them one at a time. Firstly, Paul speaks about your work produced by faith. Or to turn it around slightly, faith that produces work. So when a person becomes a Christian, when they place their faith in Jesus, it produces good works in their life. A true faith is always busy. But it's so important to see that these good works aren't the root to salvation, but rather the fruit of salvation. Our good works don't get us into heaven. And we know that because in verse 1, Paul greets the church and says, Grace and peace to you. Grace is God's unmerited favor. God gives us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness, life. And God doesn't give us what we do deserve, punishment and death. And because of that, we have peace with God, the fullness of well-being and harmony through reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other. So we're made right with God, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of God's grace. He's sending his son into the world to die on the cross in our place, for our sin. So Paul writes to the Ephesians, for example, and he says this, very famous words. He says, For it is by grace you have, you have been saved, through faith, this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Nothing we can do to get ourselves right with God. It's all because of him. But in the very next breath, Paul says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So my good works don't make me right with God, but once I'm made right with God, then my life changes. I heard about a lady who worked in a hotel. Uh, She was a chambermaid in the hotel, and one evening she went uh, to a church service close by, and she gave her life to Jesus few weeks later, she had a conversation with the pastor, and the pastor asked her, has Jesus made a difference in your life? And she says, yes, he has. And he asked her, how do you know that Jesus has made a difference? And she said, I know Jesus has made a difference because now I sweep underneath the carpets instead of just around them. Her life had changed. If you think about two trees for a moment, um, how do you know a tree is alive? Uh, Here we have two trees, one that's just full of branches, nothing else. Here's another one that has leaves and fruit on it. We know that this tree is alive because it's producing fruit. The fruit doesn't make the tree alive, but the fruit is a sign that the tree is alive. Once we have faith in Jesus, our lives have to be different. When I was in Sunday school many, many years ago at Holiday Bible Clubs, we used to sing a little song, Happiness is to know the Savior, living a life within his favor, having a change in my behavior. Happiness is the Lord. Our faith 
produces works. Secondly, Paul sees in these Christians labor prompted by love or love that prompts labor. Now, when we hear the word love, we tend to think of emotions, don't we? Even when we speak of Christian love, often the first picture that we have or the feeling that we have is exactly that regarding our feeling. So we spend a lot of time as the classic congregation over coffee afterwards, and it's wonderful. We talk and we chat and we catch up and we feel good. And we often speak then about this is a loving church. But that kind of love can easily slip into mere sentimentality. And that's not what Paul's focus is, or that of the New Testament either. The New Testament sees love as an action, love as a verb, and actually hard action as well, because notice Paul uses the word labor. That's not just work, that's hard work. And the Apostle John clarifies this for us in 1 John chapter 3. He writes this, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Notice again, love is a fruit. It's evidence of a new standing in Christ. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. When I picture that, I often think of it in dramatic terms. I think of it in terms of things that sadly take place occasionally in our world, uh, something that even took place in one of our sister churches in Kenilworth many years ago. But, but I, think, I, I picture a scene. When I think of brothers and sisters laying down their lives for each other, I can imagine terrorists jumping into a congregation and throwing hand grenades, and those believers jumping on those hand grenades and taking the death themselves, laying down their lives for their brothers and sisters. It happens. That's the kind of picture that I have. Laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters may involve our physical lives, but I suspect that actually it involves laying down our preferences, laying down our wants, our needs, our desires, all of those little things that together go up into making our lives. It's those things that we're to lay down. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Philippians. We read part of it in our service already. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says it's a, it's a mindset before it's an action. I remember reading a piece once by Adrian Plass where he described praying. Lord, I will go anywhere you send me. Lord, I will do anything you call me to do. I will cross the largest sea. I will climb the tallest mountain. And God interrupts him and says, Adrian... Yes, Lord. Do you see that lady over there? Yes, Lord. Well, she needs a lift to church every week. It's those little things that laying our lives down for others, considering others better than ourselves, 
thinking, what does this person need in this situation? How can I help? That's the kind of love that Paul is speaking about, and that's the kind of love that was seen among the Thessalonians, love that prompts labor. And then thirdly, the third vital sign, the third fruit, if you like, of a genuine believer, Paul speaks about endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or again, hope that inspires endurance. I remember hearing about a a lady who was walking into an office block, one of those big glass doors. As she walked into the office block, she pushed the door open and she hit a lady who was carrying all of these parcels. And of course, the parcels went everywhere. And she was so apologetic. And this lady already had a plaster on her nose and was looking like she'd been hit once before. And she was so apologetic and she helped this lady pack up all of her parcels. And then she said to her, it looks like you're having a really rough week. And with a radiant smile, this lady said, I'm going on holiday tomorrow. Nothing matters at all. It's a trivial example, but the expectation of a holiday in the future made a huge difference in the life of that lady's day-to-day experience in the present. And the same is supposed to be true of our lives as believers. Because as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have something to look forward to, something to hope for, indeed someone waiting for us. And that enables us to endure, to keep going as Christians, to keep on working and loving, if we will keep that end goal in mind. A few moments ago, we looked at that verse in Colossians where Paul speaks about our lives being hidden with Christ in God But when you read the context for that verse, you'll see that Paul makes an important practical implication and application of that concept. He says this, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you had an opportunity to be in the prayer room over the last few weeks, you would have read those verses. It was on a little stand on one of the stations. And on the wall, you would have seen Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. And he writes this, Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. I think one of Satan's dirtiest tricks, his main aim, in fact, is to keep us with our eyes set firmly on the ground, with things that are going on here on earth. And he makes us forget about the future. He makes us forget about heavenly things. He makes the end goal seem poor and weak, high in the sky when you die. But we have a hope that is steadfast and certain. Paul doesn't just speak of hope here. He specifically says hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, person who lived on earth and is coming back for us as well. And if we keep Jesus and his sure and certain coming in mind, it will enable us uh, to have power to resist temptation. It will enable us to endure persecution. It will enable us to face difficulty. 
It will enable us to give up our preferences in preference of others. It will enable us to face even death itself. The Anglican Digest had a little piece that I've found very helpful. I think I may have read this before, but the writer puts it this way. We are not citizens of this world trying to make our way to heaven. We are citizens of heaven trying to make our way through this world. And that radical Christian insight can be life-changing. We're not to live so as to earn God's love, inherit heaven, and purchase our salvation. All of those are given to us as gifts. Gifts bought by Jesus on the cross and handed over to us. We're to live as God's redeemed, as heirs of heaven, and as citizens of another land, the kingdom of God. We live as those who are on a journey home, a home we know will have the lights on and the door open and our Father waiting for us when we arrive. And that means in all our adversity, our worship of God is joyful, our life is hopeful, our future is secure. There is nothing we can lose on earth that can rob us of the treasures God has given us and will give us. And so the Thessalonian Christians display three outward signs of genuine believers, faith, hope, love. They're outward signs of this inner reality. They are in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if faith, hope, and love are fruit, if they're signs, how do we get more of these in our lives? Well, in one sense, it's very easy, but in another sense, it's very difficult. It's easy because I don't have to work hard at trying to produce or trying to drum up hope and faith and love in my life. <clears throat> if, if I focus on trying to produce faith, hope, and love, I'm always going to be frustrated. But remember what Jesus said. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. We bear fruit. We develop faith, hope, and love simply by remaining in Jesus. But paradoxically, remaining in Jesus can be quite difficult. <laughs> it involves things like setting my alarm clock half an hour earlier every day to read his word, to spend time with him in prayer. It involves developing healthy habits of prayer and church attendance and worship and solitude and Bible study and serving others. It involves reading good Christian books being inspired by other men and women who follow Jesus at different times in different circumstances. Remaining can be hard work, but it's only when we remain in him that we begin to develop more of these characters, faith, hope, and love. So we've spoken about the faith of the Thessalonians this morning, but, but what about our faith? What about you this morning? Have you found yourself in the double grip of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ? And if not, what's preventing you from doing that even this morning? And if we are in Christ Jesus, in God the Father, is there some evidence of that in our lives? If the Apostle Paul were to hang out with us for a few weeks, would he see these characteristics? Work produced by faith, 
labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.